which comes to us from two books, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are here by your grace and for your glory and for our good. And I ask now, God, that your word would be faithfully communicated, spoken, taught, explained, interpreted, that we all may go out and faithfully apply it. And God, may it all be done by the power of your spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is definitely the first time I've ever preached from two books at once. Um, what we're looking at today is um, kind of a goodbye and a hello message in that order. So we're wrapping up First Peter, so we're seeing him say goodbye in that letter. And we're starting into Second Peter, and we're seeing him say hello in that letter. Um, and I didn't really know how to handle this, so I still don't know how to handle it, if I'm honest with myself. We'll see what happens. Um, part of the thought pattern that I want, I want to look at this morning is vernacular, which is just a fun word to say. Everybody say vernacular. You don't have to. I was kidding. You, but it's fine. Um, it's kind of like how we say what we say, right? Um, Things that are common to a group of people who speak a certain way about a certain thing. Um, Lucas, there's barber vernacular, I'm sure, right? If I say a number one and a number two, it means something different than a number one and a number two for him. I mean, it could mean the same, but in barber vernacular, it's different size guards, right? Am I right? Yes. Yeah, just always say I'm right. That's, uh, that's always, don't embarrass me while I'm up here. Number one is a Wendy single, right? Right. right. So when you're at Wendy's, there's a vernacular, right? Now, church talk, right? We have a vernacular, don't we? We say churchy things, things that people outside the church or who don't normally come to church, they don't, they're like, what are you talking about? I remember years ago when we were at New Covenant and we were meeting at, um, what's the swanky place out in Daniels um, uh, where, all the, where all the rich people live? Glade, yeah, we were meeting at Glade Springs because we were ritzy. Actually, we just set up chairs every week. But anyway, my, my sister brought a guy with her to church, and we were seeing the, the, the focus of the music that morning was on the lamb who was worthy. Well, this guy had no idea. We even had a lamb banner. We were, we were all about the lamb. And so he leans over about six-sevenths way through the music, and he says, Why are they worshiping a lamb? And she had to explain to him what was going on, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world to forgive the sins of his people, the Passover Lamb. And he's like, ah, yeah, but what, why are they worshiping a lamb? He still didn't get it, right? So last week we're sitting in here and we're eating. And I told you I was going to get this in the message. Doggone it. And we were talking about Riz. Woo! Some of y'all know what Riz is. Some of y'all don't. You're, you're about to all know. Okay, so I looked it up on the interwebs, which is what you're supposed to do. Be careful where you let it take you, by the way. Riz is R-I-Z-Z, and it's derived from the word charisma. Okay, Riz. And here's the definition. It's another word for spitting game. 
You're welcome. Now you all know. <laughs> okay, let, let me give you a more, I don't know, um, understandable definition. Um, riz is derived from charisma or someone who has game when it comes to romantic pursuits. And some of these kids are going, that's not what it means. That's, that's a very... Uh, one's ability to attract a romantic interest. So here you go. Are you from Nashville? Because you're the only 10 I see. I'm dripping riz right now. We said that the spiritual gifts are in, the, in the scriptures are, the word is charismata, riz. So last week we're sitting back here, and I, it had to be some sort of inspiration from above. And I said that love is the riziest riz there is. And Lily heard it across the room. She said, what? <laughs> it's vernacular. Now you all know what riz means. So, husbands, triple a riz this evening. See if you can attract your lady. Um, vernacular. Can we just undo all that? Can we just <laughs> strike that from the record? No, don't, because it's important. It sets the stage for what we're talking about today. How do we say what we're talking about? What are the words that we use? What are the familiar phrases that are important and irreplaceable in what we say to each other, especially as Christians, especially as believers. And so today we see Peter saying goodbye and hello. But how does he do it? What words does he use? What's the vernacular of this goodbye and hello? Well, we're going to start in 1 Peter 5, 12 which is kind of like a postscript to the letter. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter's wrapping this letter up and just kind of again postscripting things after getting his message out. That message that has been this letter which has been so good has centered around the great salvation of God, the calling of God's people, the urgency of submission in their given circumstances, and a whole bushel full of suffering and trials. This is not an, oh, hey, how are you, I'm good kind of letter. It's been wonderful and hard and loving and serious. And now, Peter is drawing it to a conclusion, right? He's drawing it to this simple, beautiful conclusion. At face value, there's not a lot here in 5, 12 to 14. He mentions a couple of his close companions and sends greetings through them to the dispersed believers who would get this letter, and he wishes them well overall. But between the ending of this letter and the intro to the next one that we'll cover as well today, Peter wants to give them a firm foundation to stand on as they go through all of this fire that they're all going and will go through. And so he gives them the most solid ground they could possibly have. And just as a basic view of what he covers in the end of this letter and the beginning of the next, we're going to see these important words. These are some vernacular words that really ought to be on our lips a lot as the church. And I'm just going to read them in the order that they appear in the two texts. And then we'll kind of wrap that up at the end with these words. Grace. Love. Peace, in Christ, faith, righteousness, and again, grace, and again, peace. Now, you figure that these words might be important to Peter, to those who would read his letters. Do you think those words are important to us, to our faith? You better bet your life you are, they, that they are. So as we work through, be on the lookout for these words. And again, grace, love, peace, in Christ, faith, and righteousness. Be on the lookout for those words. And we'll cover them in the end and application as well. So let's dig in here. In the first part of verse 12, Peter leads by mentioning a man who's basically all over the early New Testament. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Now who is Silvanus and what's his role here? Well, Silvanus 
is the Latinized rendering of the Hebrew name Silas. We know that guy, right? No, different guy. I will start calling you Silvanus, though, because it's going to be fun. So we meet Silas slash Silvanus for the first time in Acts 15.22. And what's going on here is the church at Jerusalem is sending a letter to non-Jewish converts to Christianity. Now get that straight. The church in Jerusalem, which is predominantly converted Jews, they're sending a letter because people had gone out from the church in Jerusalem and they were telling people who weren't Jews, Gentiles, who had been converted, that they're going to have to do Jewish things to really be saved. And so word gets back to the church in Jerusalem, so they decide we're going to send a letter by these missionaries to the Gentiles saying, hey, we're the church that these folks went out from and we want to clarify we don't get behind them. We're going to tell you what's required and what's not required. You don't have to be Jewish to be saved. So they're going to send this letter out. And they mention Silas there. Um, That letter is going to help fight against the tendency of the Jews to insist upon these Gentile believers' adherence to Jewish customs in order to truly be saved. And so in Acts 15, 22-23, it says this, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church in Jerusalem to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, who had come saying, hey, this is going on. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, which is funny, just this means nothing to the message He's like, don't call me Judas anymore. Because why? A guy named Judas had done something pretty bad just a couple years, maybe not even a couple years since, by betraying Jesus. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. And Barsabbas and Silas were leading men among the brothers. And they sent them with the following letter, and we'll stop there. So it was Paul, Barnabas, a man named Barsabbas, and Silas. And they are referred to as leading men among the brothers. Now, that's who this Silvanus guy is, Silas. Paul also chooses Silas to set out with him when Paul goes on his second missionary journey after Paul and Barnabas, not Barsabbas, but Barnabas, disagreed about whether John Mark should go with them or not on the second trip because John Mark had abandoned them in the first missionary journey. So Paul said, he's a sissy, he shouldn't come with us. That's the hillbilly version, okay? Yeah, right, yeah. It's in the vernacular. Um, So John Mark and Barnabas, who Paul had traveled with before, go their own way. And Paul chooses a man named Silas, this Silas, this Silvanus, to go with him on his second journey. Um, We'll learn a little bit more about Mark, by the way, in the next verse. Um, Silas is also mentioned to have been with Timothy a lot by Paul in Paul's letters, including in 2 Corinthians and both 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Silas and Timothy were traveling around. And now we find him here. Now, where's Peter? Peter's in Rome in the mid-60s A.D. Uh, And Peter's about to be crucified, uh, according to tradition. He's going to be killed by the Romans, and, and we find that Silas is here with him. And so needless to say, this Silvanus Silas guy was a very busy and faithful and fruitful man in the early church up to and including the time of Peter's writing this letter, which is the mid-60s A.D. No wonder Peter says he is a faithful brother as I regard him. Now, what was Silas, Silas or Silvanus's, I'm not, whichever one comes out, let it, you know it's Silas Silvanus, okay? So what was Silvanus's role mentioned here in verse 12? Mm, too far back, there we go. Well, Peter says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So if you just take that at first glance, it would appear that Silvanus wrote down what Peter was saying. It's my first assumption, but beware assuming, we all know. There is a lot actually written about this whole thought pattern here. I thought this was, I thought this was easy, but checking the commentaries, I'm like, oh, shoot, no, I entered, I entered into a debate. I didn't know it, Okay. General consensus amongst those I see as faithful to the text consistently is actually that it means that Sylvanus carried the letter, not that he wrote it down. Thomas Schreiner explains it this way. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, is more cautious and accurate in translating the phrase through Sylvanus. I have written this short letter. The phrase, to write through someone, and he gives the Greek for that, during the time the New Testament was written, does not identify the scribe, but the carrier of the letter. 
Hence, Peter did not specify the scribe, but informed the readers that Silvanus was the one designated to carry the letter to them, end of quote. Now we can look back at the letter that was carried from the church in Jerusalem that we mentioned earlier. It was said to have been sent through Silas and Barsabbas, Paul and uh, Barnabas, as representatives of the church in Jerusalem. Who was carrying the letter was very important. And very often, the letter itself identified who was carrying it along with recommendation of that person as a sign of authenticity. So it was very likely that Silas... Or Silvanus, I'll stop that, was the one who actually delivered this letter to the churches mentioned at the outset of it. So, so now Peter turns from the who to the why. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter says he has written briefly for what purpose? Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Well, I'd say that's pretty important then, right? What Peter has written, he calls the true grace of God. This whole letter was written to help explain and pass on the true grace of God. And let me reiterate a a sentence from earlier. That message has centered around the great salvation of God, the calling of God's people, the urgency of submission in their given circumstances, and a whole bushel full of suffering and trials. That, Peter says, is the true grace of God. So you're going to have to have a, a, a clear, important, trusted messenger to bring that message to these people. And he says, Silvanus, as far as I see it, is a faithful brother. Now, just something real close, real, again, kind of side sidearm here. If Peter saw Silvanus as faithful, he's calling on the recipients of this letter to see him as faithful too. That's important. And so he says, I'm entrusting this message to this faithful man who will faithfully deliver it to you And as you see his faithful pattern, I want you to follow his faithful pattern in enacting the faithful pattern of the words that I've given you. So we'll move on from that. The true grace of God, he says, this whole letter was written to help and explain and pass on the true grace of God. All that he has written in this letter is calling their attention to the true grace of God. That word grace is familiar. It's a church word. It's in our vernacular, right? It's the New Testament word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. Oh, got some riz in there, didn't we? We have defined this word in the past as, and this is a good, we'll reference this definition again. Grace is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Now that's a mouthful. Let me read it one more time. Grace is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns those souls to Christ, keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian faith, in Christian knowledge and affection, and kindles those hearts that He's given this grace to, to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Grace is not just given to you at the moment of your salvation. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace shall bring me home. Grace is active from the beginning of your salvation until we are glorified. And all eternity will be full of grace. And it's not just God being nice, it's God's power moving in us, on us, and through us. That's very important. And Peter says his letter is the true grace of God. And what does he tell his readers to do with this grace? He tells them to stand firm in it, in the true grace of God. Stand firm in the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now we mentioned standing last week when Peter called on believers to resist the devil firm in their faith. Resisting itself was said to be standing as we see in Ephesians 6. And here, the clear call is for the faithful to stand firm in their faith. There's another vernacular word, right? Faith. 
They've been given the true grace of God freely. It's impossible to earn grace. If it's earned, it's not grace. And so then, is it odd that they've been commanded to do something with that grace? Commanded to stand in it. Thomas Schreiner again. This is fantastic, I think. Screw on your thinking caps. Listen, engage this, okay? The delicate balance between the indicative and imperative is preserved here. Now let me pause this for a second. Indicative is something that happens to you. Imperative is what you're commanded to do yourself. So what's been, what happened to me and then what am I doing? And so take that into consideration again, okay? I lost my place. The delicate balance between the indicative and the imperative is preserved here, Schreiner says, when you're talking about grace. Grace has grasped every believer in Jesus Christ, and believers have been begotten by God's grace, which we saw back in 1 Peter 1.3. Schreiner goes on. Still, they must stand in the grace... That has secured them. Grace does not cancel out the imperative, but establishes it. End of quote. Now, what's that mean? Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace shall bring me home. What am I doing that whole time? Nothing? Indicative and imperative. Grace has been given to you. Stand in it. Grace does not cancel out the imperative but establishes it. That was the end of that quote. Listen. The free grace of God is given for action. Remember the definition again. The merciful kindness of God, this is grace, the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian faith, in Christian knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Grace kindles us to exercise. Grace kindles us to the exercise of the Christian virtues. So stand in it. Jesus would say it this way in John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now this is monstrously huge for the message of sanctification specifically. God saved you by His grace. And then we ask the question all the time, so then what am I supposed to do? Stand in it. Stand firm in it. Abide in it. Rest in it. Stay where you are. As a branch latched onto the vine where the true life flows from. Stand there. Engage the fact that I am standing here. I was put here by God's grace. I'll be kept here by God's grace. I'm standing, God. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm not trying my own stuff. I'm not looking to the self-help gurus. I'm standing in the grace that you've given me. This is huge. I can't think of a better parallel to standing in grace than abiding in Christ. Grace called you. Grace sustained you. And grace will indeed bring you home. Stand in that. Abide in the one who came and died and lived again and ascended to make His grace available for you and active to you. Stand firm in that. Yes, indeed. Rest in and stand firm in that, Peter says. Then he goes to verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. By the way, we're not done with this whole grace and standing in it thing. We'll get to it at the end. We've got to get through the text as well. This verse starts out a little bit odd, I think. Peter mentions two people, question mark, who send greetings to the churches that he's writing to. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, 
and Mark, my son, send greetings to these churches. Now, both of these need a little or a lot of explanation, I think. Let's look at the first one. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. So who is that? And where is that? Well, I think you have to take the whole statement to figure out what he's saying. Whoever it is, they are referred to as she. So is that masculine or feminine? That's feminine, right? Is it a woman? Well, apparently. But look where this woman is next. She who is at Babylon. Now again, I think Babylon is one of those Bible words that we don't think about enough. We hear it, oh, Babylon, okay. Now wait a minute. If you go back to Old Testament times... In Old Testament thinking, Babylon was the world power after Assyria. We saw some references to Babylon when we studied Nahum. They were the empire that toppled mighty Assyria, Babylon was. But the Babylonian empire was then defeated by the Medo-Persian empire, who was then overcome by the Greeks, and then the Greeks were absorbed by the Romans. And over a period of several hundred years, all that happened. So while there were still cities called Babylon in Peter's time, We know Peter wasn't in a Babylon. He was in Rome, right? He was writing from Rome. Peter would be crucified upside down according to tradition around 65, 66 AD, not too long after his two letters were written. By this time, the Roman Empire was shaping up to be quite the enemy of the early church. And they would call Rome by a name to keep from being identified as those who cursed Rome. And what do you think they called Rome? Babylon. So Peter is referencing then a lady in Rome, he's calling Babylon, that is sending her greetings to the dispersed recipients of his letter. Now who is she? Well, she's referred to as she who is likewise chosen. Picking up on it yet? You getting there? Some have said maybe it was Peter's wife. He was married, we know that. He did take along a believing spouse, which Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 9. But there is a fairer lady still that Peter is sending greetings from. It was the church, the church in Rome. She who is likewise chosen, just like the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Yes, the church in Rome was chosen just like the churches in those locales had been. The chosen, purchased, ransomed, precious bride of Christ resided in every city and region. And the church is always referred to as she. Why? Because she's the bride of Christ. Chosen by God Himself, just like Peter had referred to the elect exiles in Asia. Yes, the church in Rome called Babylon, likewise chosen as Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, Peter says. So that she's saying the church. And somebody else does too. Mark, my son. Did Peter have a son named Mark? Nope. Not that we know of. He's referring to a guy who's referenced a few times in the New Testament who even wrote a book of the New Testament, the Gospel of... Thank you, Mark. Y'all are sharp. Y'all got all kinds of res this morning. He's also called John Mark in a few places in the New Testament. And many have said that Mark's Gospel could easily have been called the Gospel of Peter. Why? Because Mark got so much of his first-hand accounts from Peter, Peter who discipled Mark directly, and hence Peter calling him his son. Peter, uh, Mark was Peter's son, Mark Peterson, Mark was Peter's son, like Timothy was Paul's true child in the faith. It wasn't his physical son, it was his spiritual son. Somebody he had poured himself into like a father to a son. And Mark was obviously there with Peter in Rome at the time of Peter's writing. And Peter says that Mark sent them greetings as well. So the church of Rome and Mark are who Peter is referencing here. And then there's the last verse of 1 Peter. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The letter is drawn to a close by a command and a blessing. First the command, greet one another, Peter says to the churches, with the kiss of love. The kiss of love. The kiss of love? What is that? What's going on here? Warren Wiersbe expounds on it this way. Four times in the New Testament we will find the admonition about a holy kiss. 
That's Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. That's all Paul, right? Well, Peter calls it the kiss of love. Now keep in mind, what was going on here was that men kissed men and women kissed the women with a holy kiss, a kiss of love, a greeting. It was a sign of intimacy. It was a standard form of greeting or farewell in that part of the world at the time, just as it is in many Latin countries today. End of quote from Wearsby. You might remember, we talked about Judas before, how did he identify Jesus as the one that the Romans were supposed to take? He did it with a kiss, which was a sign of intimacy. This is my friend. And Jesus said, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It was a sign of intimacy and friendship. Again, man to man, woman to woman. So then, should we kiss each other within the church? Well, let me just say this. I don't want you kissing on me. Ain't none of you fellas pretty enough to be kissing on me. I'm sorry. So I'm asking, please don't kiss me, fellas. Okay? If you all want to kiss on each other, have at it. I don't even hug much. I'm not much. I'm more of a side hug kind of guy. It's, it's therapy, right? And it's personal preference too, right? I'd say it's a safe practice to do what your brother or sister is comfortable with. That may mean oh, you might have to talk to somebody and see what they're comfortable with. I grew up in a culture, unfortunately, where kids... As kids, we had to reciprocate hugs and even kisses whether we wanted to or not. You get over there and you kiss that woman now, or you kiss that man. And I'm like, no thanks. Showing physical affection is an intimate thing, and we need to be sensitive to how we do it now. So this command that Peter is giving was culturally relevant to the people who received this letter the people that he was writing to, and we need to make sure we know how to show affection to each other now. We should show affection for each other. We should be intimately acquainted with one another. And we should do it in a safe and respectful manner. You kissers and huggers, kiss and hug on each other, as long as you don't mind it. The rest of us, (laughs) the rest of us, let's make sure people know we love them in ways that we feel comfortable doing that in. Okay, we should have signs of affection toward one another. COVID killed the handshake. I hate that. Shake hands. I think it's good. And fellas, young fellas, good firm handshake. Looking somebody in the eye speaks volumes. Shake hands. Uh, shake hands. <laughs> I shook hands with a fellow the other day, and it was like this. I'm like, come on, man, grab my hand. You don't have to crush somebody's hand. That's a sign of like, no. you're like, look, come on, don't do that. Now it's weird like you go to shake somebody's hand and they put up a fist bump because it's like we don't, you know, what do we do anymore? Shake, shake hands. If you're a hugger, hug. But make sure that the person that you're going to hug is down with that, okay? And don't kiss me. That's the, that'll be an application letter later. I kiss my wife and that's about it. I don't know that I've ever kissed my kids. Some of you are like, that's really sad. Maybe to you. I don't think they feel deprived. I don't think. We'll talk about that later too. Let's make sure that people know we love them in ways that we feel comfortable showing them love, showing them intimacy. And then Peter closes the letter by saying, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace is one of those vernacular words, one of those church words. It was also a 60s word. It meant something different in the 60s than it does within the church, right? Yeah, absolutely it does. Okay? Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Paul's normal closing was either grace to you or maybe grace and something else. Sometimes grace and peace, sometimes other things. Peter, to these believers facing persecution and suffering, his last wish for them in this first letter is peace. It was his first wish for them too, which we saw in chapter 1 verse 2 of First Peter. I don't have that up there. But he said, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What is more needed in the midst of trials and sufferings than grace and peace? And so Peter closes this letter by commending them peace, commending to them peace. And peace is not just the absence of conflict. 
but rather what Strong's lexicon defines as, quote, the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. That's a real good definition of peace. Give me that, please. So Peter sends his readers, whom he defines as all of you who are in Christ, there's a vernacular word that we'll talk about later, he, he, he wishes and sends to them peace. Shalom is the Jewish word. And the letter ends. But Peter wrote another letter. And so we'll look at the beginning of that as we finish today. Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. We'll only do two verses, so we're almost done. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's quite a verse, by the way. So right out of the gate, I have a question for Second Peter. Who's this Simeon Peter guy? We've seen him called Simon, Cephas, Peter, and even Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah or John. But Peter is called Simeon in one other place in the New Testament, in Acts 15 which we looked at earlier, at the council we referenced, where the church in Jerusalem was sending a letter to Gentile believers about what is required of them to be truly saved. There, James, speaking, calls Peter Simeon. Now, let let me explain that if I can. Simeon is a very Jewish name and variant of Simon. It's very local, very homey. So I don't want to embarrass her, but... Lillian, we've got a couple Lillians here. Some people would call them Lillian. It's just a different way of pronouncing it, basically. It's kind of a, a accent type of thing. Where are you putting the emphasis on the syllable? Lillian or Lillian. Okay? That's kind of what's going on here. This very local, very friendly, homey word of Simeon. Peter's close Jewish associates would probably have called him Simeon. So Peter would have heard it before, but his readers may not have. Now here's something else with this second letter. We actually don't know who this letter is to. He doesn't say. He will reference his readers in spiritual terms, not geographical terms. This letter may be to the same audience as 1 Peter, but we don't know that for sure. 2 Peter 3.1 does say that this is the second letter that he's writing to these people, but I would guess Peter wrote a lot of letters in his ministry, especially while he was in prison. So I'd say a lot of people got second letters. But again, we just don't know. But the fact that Peter uses the name Simeon seems to denote local well-known recipients. It's not of major importance, truthfully, but I will say this. There are several progressive commentators who point out that the use of Simeon here confuses them. Why? Because some of these progressive commentators say that 2 Peter was actually written under a pseudonym a hundred years later. That Peter didn't really write it. It was somebody using Peter's name. Why they say that? I don't know. They're like, it's impossible for Peter to have written this because blank. Are you kidding me? This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So, the fact that he uses the name Simeon here is a really pretty good stamp of authenticity that it was truly Peter who wrote it. All through history, many have said this letter was written by someone other than Peter later than when Peter was alive, but the use of his close associate name points to it probably really being Peter. Someone who was hijacking his name for fame or credence would have probably used his well-known name, not his local good old boy name. And I think God's pretty smart, y'all. I think he's pretty wise to drop this little detail in there to preserve the integrity of his word. Coming through his servant in the power of his Holy Spirit. So then Peter identifies himself as Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now in 1 Peter, he only identified himself as an apostle. Here he adds servant to his resume. Apostle means sent one, but it also meant people who had actually been with Jesus at the time of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. People who had seen the resurrected Lord. 
And there were 12 guys who were tapped apostles. And the apostolic teaching was very, very critical to preserve. And Peter says, I'm one of those 12 guys. I am one of those 12 men. So the things that I'm teaching, this is the true grace of God. He said at the end of 1 Peter. And so it's important that he identify himself and that it's really him. Not just some Joe Schmo who said, I'll write this in Peter's name and it'll go wide. It'll go viral. Vernacular. So he adds apostle and servant. Which is him saying he was Jesus' slave. That meant that he didn't do anything on his own initiative. He wasn't writing on his own initiative. He only did what he was sent by Jesus to do. And his standing was not for his own fame, but for the glory of the one who sent him. That's a pretty good business card in my opinion. Apostle and servant. Servant and apostle. Now to his readers. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. What a sentence. And what a descriptor of these folks that are getting this letter. Let's dig into it quite a bit. We're almost done, y'all. So it's those, which makes it plural. This letter is not to an individual. And these, those, are those who have obtained a faith. Now that's important. Let's look at that. Who have obtained is one Greek word. It's lankano. And it means to obtain by lot. To receive by divine allotment. So these folks have received what they have received by no doing of their own. It was given by divine allotment. By casting of lots shows that there was no skill involved. The people didn't obtain by their doing. And Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the math adds up to this. What these folks received came by God's doing. And what have they obtained by God's doing? A faith. We've said a bunch of times that our faith is a gift from God. As we've looked at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Now the question that we've asked out of this passage in Ephesians is. What was the gift? The grace or the faith? And the answer is yes. The grace was the gift of God. Your faith was the gift of God. You didn't conjure it up. It was given by divine allotment. These readers, us too, had received their faith from God. Your faith in God is a gift from God. But what kind of faith is this? Peter says it's of equal standing with ours. Now what's this about? We don't know exactly because we can't know who the ours is here. It could reflect to Gentiles getting the same faith as the Jews got or the common believer getting what the twelve apostles got. Or it could mean out-of-towners versus those in Jerusalem. We have no way of knowing. But regardless, we know that there is no hierarchy in the church. No one is higher than anyone else. No one gets saved by any other means than grace through faith. And the faith that these recipients got was in equal standing with anyone else in the church. Jew, Gentile, apostle, slave, whatever, whoever. There is no faith of any greater specialness or any better quality than the one that God gives to all of His people individually and collectively. Why? Because it's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is straight gospel truth here. My hope... My faith is built on nothing less than what? Than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. There is no salvation apart from receiving the righteousness of Jesus as a gift from God Himself by faith. That's the faith that saved Peter. That's the faith that saved St. Augustine. The faith that saved Luther. The faith that saved my grandma. And the faith that saved me and you. And whoever else God has chosen to save. And that's what Peter's reiterating here at the outset of this letter. And then we have the remainder of the intro in verse 2, our last verse for the day. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, quite a sentence. 
Peter has just magnified the faith that his readers have received as a gift from God. And here, before he gets into the main text of his letter, he magnifies the grace and peace of God again. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, we've already covered what grace and peace are. And so Peter here asks that these blessings of grace and peace be multiplied to his readers. And how will that happen? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He wants them to know God. He wants them to know Jesus. How is grace and peace going to be multiplied to you? Through your knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in John 17. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's almost like Peter was listening when Jesus prayed that. It's almost like he heard it and said, ooh, that's important. And so he's passing it on now to these people who are receiving this letter. Peter knew that if his readers were going to experience multiplied grace and peace, it would be because they knew God, because they knew Jesus our Lord. So before he drops some knowledge on them, he primes their pump to receive it. Let me tell you what, Second Peter is going to be a wacky ride, y'all. If you haven't read it, read it. There's some stuff in there. <laughs> but it's going to be incredible. It's going to be a pretty crazy ride, but it's going to be well worth it. And so he's saying, this knowledge that I'm about to give you is going to lead you to know God and to know Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you ready to receive it? Are we ready to receive it? Hope so. Well, that's our texts for the day. I don't think I've ever said that before. So we turn to application now. What do we do about it? What do we do because of it? Well, I'm just going to focus on those key words we mentioned at the beginning for application. But I've reordered them some. And here's application. Love, grace, faith, in Christ, righteousness, peace. These words have to be in our vernacular. And not just saying them, but knowing them and living them. Peter was so immersed in this vernacular, basically what we said earlier was he's going to say goodbye and hello in these two passages. And this is how he says it. This is the vernacular that he uses to say goodbye and hello. Is it in our vernacular? Is this how we talk as Christians? As those who are in Christ? We'll get to that in a minute. Love, grace, faith, in Christ, righteousness, peace. And what do we have from these key words? One, two, three, four, five, six. What do we have in these key words? It's the gospel. This is the gospel. God, because of the great love with which He loved us, gave us the gift of His grace, which we received by faith, and thus we were placed in Christ and given His very righteousness as a gift, and whereby we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Goodbye and hello. You say goodbye, I say hello. But I say it in gospel vernacular. See, here's the problem. The most dangerous thing we face as Christians is that we forget the main things. The plain things. We want to debate about points of doctrine. That's fine. That's not bad or wrong. But when it becomes our focus, we're wrong. When I start using the vernacular of the world to help apologize for Jesus, I'm wrong. When I start to make excuses as to why uh, the Bible's not 100% accurate, there's some problems with it, I'm wrong. And I've got to come back to this. This should be on my mind, on my lips, and worked out through my hands and feet every day of my life. Moment by moment, remembering the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, living out the gospel. 
That God loved me enough to give me His grace and through faith I'm placed in Christ, given His righteousness, and therefore I have the peace of God that passes understanding. And so can you. That's Peter's way of saying goodbye and hello. It's the very air that he breathes. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For all of us, let's remind each other of the main things. Let's speak the things that are plain, that are main, and that are pivotal in our faith. So that we remind each other of it, and so that we're speaking consistently of it to those who don't believe it. Believers or non-believers, these are the truths that we must repeat and remind ourselves of all the time. This is what it means to abide. This is what it means to stand firm. This is our vernacular. This is our very life and breath. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to preach the gospel to each other. And we've got to preach the gospel to those around us that the life of God might be made manifest in and through us. Peter was so gospel-saturated that his goodbyes and his hellos carried the very vernacular of the same gospel. And may it be so with us. And may we stand firm in it. God, we talk a lot. We say so much. We use so many words. Words that are peculiar to us, particular to us. Words that we prefer. God, may we be those who speak your words. In all that we say, in all that we do, may we be proclaiming the gospel. And yes, it is necessary to use words in order to do that. So may it be said of us, they were always proclaiming the gospel. May we follow Peter's example, who took your words and shared them with other people, who spoke of your grace and faith and love and righteousness and of being in Christ and of peace. May our words be seasoned as by as with salt to proclaim these truths, these loving, powerful, beautiful truths to each other and to the world around us. Help us to do it, God, for your glory and for our good and the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.